0: Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 is where we're beginning this morning. And here's where we are, church. We are in the first chapter of a three-chapter sermon of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Last couple weeks, we've looked at, well, a few weeks, I guess, from Jesus, Jesus teaching us in regards to our anger, an emotion of anger, teaching us in regards to the emotion of lust, Lust leads into a conversation in regards to the sanctity of marriage and the consequences of divorce and what God's design and plan is. And that leads into this conversation of O's, of letting your yes be yes and your no be no. So I've titled this morning, Yes and No. It's not yes and no at the same time, but we'll see Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But if you write notes, if you write in your Bible, put this in quotes, be your word. That's literally what the Greek says. You need to be, I need to be, we ought to be our word. Be your word. Yes, yes. Be your word. No, no is what Jesus says. So we'll get into, we're going to have a lot to go through this morning. We're going to read through a few verses here in Matthew 5. We're gonna go into Matthew chapter 23, which Jesus teaches the same thing, just from a little bit different perspective. And then we're going to back our way into a lot of Old Testament verses that Jesus is reaching to that provides the weight and emphasis behind what he's expressing. And then we're going to get back into Matthew, the evangelist, and really sit with what this man is speaking about in regards to the righteousness of God that he gives to us as we follow him. This is uh, pretty awesome. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 is where we're beginning. says, And you have heard that it was said to these of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. What hair, you say? Just making sure you're paying attention. But let your word... um, Just so you know, in the... I don't know how your translation phrases it. In the Greek, it literally says uh, the word, the logos, in the text. It's literally, be your word. Uh, be let your word be, be your word. Yes, yes. No, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. All right. It's pretty straightforward. We'll come back and teach on it for sure, but flip over to Matthew 23. If you were not familiar with Matthew 23, Jesus is confronting those religious leaders who have a very religious heart, who take the word of God and twist it to meet their own means. This is a lot of what we see church religion do today, create a whole bunch of systems of man's commandments and tell us as followers of Jesus, here are the man's commandments that you need to follow rather than the word of God. This is the conversation. This is the, the, it's just not a conversation. This is the... Jesus confronting the souls of these men in this circumstance. So in the middle of this, in verse 16, Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Listen, listen to that again. This is a teaching in the time of Jesus, in the culture. The religious leaders are saying, if you swear by the temple that has been built for God, according to all those Old Testament instructions, if you swear by that building, you don't have to keep your vow that you've just vowed. But if you swear by the money in that building, oh boy, you got to keep it now. Does that sound like a little bit of hypocrisy? That's what Jesus is getting at. He says, fools and blind. Now remember, when Jesus was talking to us about anger, he told us that when we call our brother raka, or you call your brother a fool, the word for fool in the Greek is where we get moron from. Jesus says, we're in danger of the judgment. Jesus is using the word moron. Morons and blind. And he's not doing it as an expression, as an insult, as a dagger. He's not doing it in sin or in his flesh. He's doing it in a way that is waking up their soul. You fools. Think about what you're thinking and think about what you're saying is what Jesus is getting at. Fools and blind. For which is greater? The gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold, that sets it apart? The temple is defined as holy because God is holy and God has defined that place as holy and that part was set apart to his holiness. So the question is what makes it, what makes it holy money or the location that it's in because God has defined that location as holy. So what Jesus is getting at and whoever swears by the altar, nothing but whoever swears by the gift that is on it he is obliged to perform it exact same thing fools and blind blind for which is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him The almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So between this chapter here in 23 and in chapter 5, Jesus is addressing a specific problem, a specific religious problem in the culture. And the religious problem is it's hypocrisy. It's dealing with the integrity of our hearts and the words that come out of our hearts. So in the religious culture, they're giving people reasons and excuses to say, I swear to you, I'm giving you an oath by, uh, by the altar, yeah, I'm going to do A, B, and C, but they're giving me permission for an out not to be a man of my word and fulfill A, B, and C because I didn't swear by the gift that was on. You see all the twist that's going on there. So sometimes your yes can be a no and sometimes your no can be a yes. It just depends on what you swear by. It's it's foolishness is what Jesus is getting at. He's telling us to think. Ultimately in this section in Matthew chapter five, We've brought this up multiple times, but Jesus is giving us the high bar of what true righteousness is. And when we get back into Matthew 5, we'll again sit in that idea. But just know that as He, here's the bar be your word. If your word is yes, be it, do it. If your word is no, be it. Don't do it in, in context, whatever your vow is. Anything that you're speaking beyond that, anything that in our culture, you know, I swear to God, but what in our culture do? You can cross your fingers and you can put your fingers behind your back and you can swear to God and all of a sudden it's now an invalid promise, right? What does crossing your fingers have to do with anything? Nothing. It's a childish game and that's what Jesus is getting at. But now I want to put all the threads into the Old Testament language of what the Word of God says and what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5. We're going we're gonna to back into all of this. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to first Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Right in the middle of your Bible after Psalms and Proverbs is Ecclesiastes. And commercial break in two years when we finish the Gospel of Matthew, we will come back and study Ecclesiastes verse by verse. I absolutely love this document. Ecclesiastes 5 says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Pull that into English. Do not let your mouth write a check that your body part can't cash. Nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. I just, it just came out. I didn't mean it. That, that was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your excuses? What my translation says, it's literally, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams, in many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. This is known as wisdom literature. King Solomon is expressing a lot of wisdom just in life. There is so much of life that's just vanity. It is pointless. The emphasis of this document is God has given you life. And you should enjoy the life that he has given to you. In your relationship with God, in Jesus Christ, be free. Be holy in that free, freeness, in that liberty. But enjoy your life. Eat, drink, be merry. At the ultimate conclusion is fear God. Trust in God. Obey his commandments is the ultimate instruction of Ecclesiastes. But here... Jesus is pulling from this teaching and others that we'll get into as he's addressing his culture and his time. Let your, let your words be few when you start committing yourself to God. Don't let your voice and your words be an offense to God, rambling off a bunch of things that you think you, that you believe that God wants to hear come out of your mouth when your mind and your heart and your life have no desire and no intention of backing up the words that you're speaking. Don't let your voice be offensive to God. When you come to God, there is a time to pour out your heart. There's a time to pour out your heart in tears. There's a time to pour out your heart in anger and frustration. Don't let this kind of idea be a lid on your mouth and your conversation with God in the sense of, like, I can't say this to God because I don't want him to know about this part of me. He knows everything about you. He sees everything about you. He's constantly inviting you into a conversation. There are many times that it's very healthy to express these things out loud in your prayer closet, one-on-one with God, and allow the Holy Spirit to work through you and his word in truth. What's being directly addressed is in regards to your vows. God, I will never do that again, I swear to God. And you know in the moment that you're swearing to God, when you get up from that prayer and you go about your life, you're gonna find yourself doing what you just committed not to do in a day, in a month, in a year. Or God, I know that this is what you want me to do. I'm going to do it. I swear to God, whatever vow be, is being made. And then when you get up from that prayer, you don't go and do what you told God that you were going to do. Don't let your words be offensive to God. This isn't, this isn't a game. There's nothing that you can do to impress God. There is no work that you can do to impress him. There is no work that you can do that's going to catch him by surprise. No mistake. On the cross, Every single one of your failures disappeared as he paid the payment. And that, is that gift that he has given to us, it's received by the simple act of faith. And again, when you say, God, I believe you, that's a, that's a vow, that's a commitment. Don't backpedal on that vow and that commitment. When you say that you trust God, I'm telling you right now, he is worthy to be trusted. His words, not your words, not your interpretation, not your misapplication, and those things that we all err in. But when it comes to the word of God, his word is true. His word is fact. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he came to fulfill it all, not to remove any of it, but he's going to fulfill it all. And that is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 5. That is what Solomon is getting at here in Ecclesiastes 5. Now flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 23. This is the fifth book of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 23 When Jesus is quoting in Matthew 5 when you have heard it said this is one of the sections that he is quoting from. Deuteronomy 23 verse 21 says, "When you make a vow to the Lord your God, You shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And it would be sin to you. Like if you didn't do it, right? But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. So this is where Jesus is saying, "Don't don't even make vows. If you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips. You shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Anybody ever voluntarily committed something to God and not fulfilled it? I don't need to raise the hands because you all have. I know you have because I have. We're all guilty, right? Right. And Jesus is placing, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's placing us all under guilt. He's placing us all under the standard. I'll back up to Numbers. I remember the chapter. What chapter is in Numbers? Is it on the wall? Hold on, I got it written. Numbers chapter 30. Okay, this is a long one. Um, We're not going to read through this whole chapter, but Numbers 30 is addressing, the whole chapter is addressing this subject matter. It says, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth and her father hears her vow and then... uh, and the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she is bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. And then he goes on and talks about the same kind of relationship between a woman and her husband. So culturally, a woman did not have the rights to enter into a contractual agreement. If a a woman is still under her father's authority in the father's household, she's not married and she makes a contract, she makes a vow, she makes an an agreement. And when that comes to her father's ears, if he holds her peace, then she's bound by that. Or if he says, I don't think so, dear, and he undoes that, the Lord is freeing her from the vow that she's made and uh, based upon the father's authority. And the same thing in a husband-wife relationship. So this is a cultural thing, and this is what's being described. Now, everybody in the room should praise God for this statement. Do you know why? Because who is your father? The creator is your father. All right, men and women, how many vows have you made that you ought not to have made? When God hears, this, this, is, this is one of these things. There's the law, there's the rule of the law, and the letter kills. But in the grace of God, we don't, this is not something to abuse and sit there and lie and have a lack of integrity and be dishonest in your life and relationships that you have. But God knows those words that come out of our mouth. He knows our intentions. He knows the vows that you've made. And as our father, he steps into some of those vows and and undoes it and releases you from that vow. Does that make sense? It's not something to be abused. It's something to know and understand in the grace of God. As our father, he has authority over us and we don't have control over authority in anything in our life. He's the father and we are submitted to him and we are following him. And everything that he allows us to do and enjoy in this life, it's at his behest and at his authority. The same imagery can be used there between a husband and a wife because God uses that relationship to define us also. Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. As we are entering into a relationship with him and we make contracts and we make vows and we make decisions that he doesn't want us to make, he does not hold his peace, but he comes in and he releases us. He releases us from sin. He releases us from bondage. He releases us from the stupid words that come out of our mouth, these vows that we make. He cleanses us from a hundred billion failures. Awesome, huh? All right, back into Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is important because there are all kinds of Commands in relationship to, for us as, as brothers and sisters, in relationship to each other. At the very beginning of chapter 19 of Leviticus, we have a command you shall be holy. You shall be set apart. You shall be distinct. You shall be dedicated, as all of this language for holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Goes through a bunch of beginning things in verse 11 of 19 you shall not steal nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. That's what Jesus is quoting. We continue on in this for context because it's great. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him, The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, the rich. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. Don't hate him, but if a rebuke needs to happen, do it. uh, and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That is listed out as the second greatest commandment in the word of God in regards to loving our neighbor and how much that love is attached to our mouth And how much our mouth is attached to our mind and how much our mind is attached to our heart is the conversation Jesus is getting out. One final one, Exodus chapter 19, and this is really the root and the foundation of this whole conversation. Remember in the book of Exodus, you have in the beginning chapters, there is the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob that are in Egypt, and they have found themselves to be in slavery for four generations, and they are crying out to the Lord for deliverance from their bondage and imagery for us, that, that, that cry out for release from bondage, from these, these things in life, whether shackles have been put on you, whether you've put the shackles on yourself, this cry of freedom from sin. God hears that cry and he answered the cry. He sent Moses in the Old Testament to be the lawgiver and the deliverer. For us, he has sent his son to deliver us as he died for us on the cross. As they come out of Egypt, there is this... All of those circumstances, in chapter 15, you have, uh, they're, they're crossing through the Red Sea. Everybody is experiencing this. They've stood still. They've seen the salvation of the Lord. There's the Song of Moses that's expressed. And now they're 90 days into the wilderness. In this wilderness period, it says that God is specifically testing them. He is whittling out of them Egypt. Scrape by scrape, he is getting their idolatry out of them. He is waking them up to themselves and their own hearts and the culture. He is waking them up to who he is as creator. He is exposing them that I am the God who has created the heavens and the earth and I have chosen you and I have called you and I have brought you out of this nation in Egypt to be my people. 90 days out, God gives instructions to Moses, go and tell the people in three days. Be ready. Yeah, it's a reference to the cross of Christ for sure. Jesus was dead and buried for three days. As we sit at Mount Calvary, at Golgotha is the name where the cross of Jesus Christ was. It gives for us this image of the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. And here's the power. I'd say, make ready because I'm coming to meet you. Jesus came to meet us in the flesh. He came to meet us on the cross to die for our sins. And he met us on that third day as he rose again from the dead. Jesus, if you left the grave, so will I. That's his promise and that's our faith and that's our hope. Now I want you to sit in the drama of this scene because the drama of this scene is God is there. Moses, tell the people, I am coming in three days and they need to be ready. Because when I come, I am going to speak and I am holy. The word for to fear God, that God is awesome, the word for awesome, its root, it's terrible, it's a terror, like shocking. If God were to unveil himself, if he were to descend in this room and make himself known in any physical way whatsoever, every single one of us would be undone and on the ground without a doubt. To engage God apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a terrible thing, and we have all of the description of that. When we come to God through his son, we are invited into him as a son, as a daughter, and you have freedom and access to his presence. And he promises that he dwells within you today. That's the power of it. Now sits in the drama of this scene in the Old Testament. God is coming. You will stay separate from me because I am holy. And when God descends, it is in this physical dark cloud that says that it's billowing with fire and with light. He has covered himself as the almighty God has come off of his throne, which wherever his throne is and wherever he's existed for all eternity, he came down and he is there in his glory, in his holiness, shielding those from his presence that could not come in yet because Jesus had not died for their sins. And the people are afraid. And the people, God sends Moses once again, go tell the people, stay separate. Do not come on this hill. Anybody that comes up on this mountain is going to die because I am holy and you are not. God is giving this declaration of separation with the plan of how to bring us in. And it's this scene when God comes that he now speaks audibly the words of the Ten Commandments. This isn't nobody's just sitting back and, oh, look, there's there's some smoke in the air. And anybody got some figs and dates? You know, I mean, this is not some kind of leisure activity. Three million plus people are filled with terror at what they are seeing. And they don't know why God is there. To destroy them, to provide for them. All of a sudden, their whole history is now before each soul of everything that they've ever said and everything that they've ever done. They're complaining in the last three months, their failures and all of these different tests. And here's the almighty God now speaking to them audibly. And he gives to them commands for righteousness. And the commands for righteousness, they're based on our relationship with him. And they're based upon our relationships with each other as human beings. And in verse seven of chapter 20, again, this is the scene as these words are coming out. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless, uh, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So when Jesus is talking about this on the Sermon on the Mount, this is ultimately the foundation of the word that he's reaching back to. Now, what does it mean to take the name of the Lord's God in vain? Some, you know, they say that you know it's cussing, it's taking, it's using the Lord's name as an expletive. The real weight is going. That's going to be true, yes, of course. But the real weight's going to press into you. Shall not take the name of the Lord in your worship, in your sacrifice, in your religious behavior, in emptiness, without thinking, without consideration, without reckoning who God is and who you are in that relationship with him. You shall not take, receive my name in vain. As we profess faith in Jesus Christ, Blake, you shall not take my name in vain. I don't come to my creator with just this name Jesus in emptiness. When I say the name of Jesus, it, for me, it's Jesus, period, It is the name by which I have been saved. It is the name by which defines for me the nature and character of God. It's the name that defines for me his mission, why he became a man, what the gospel is all about, what all the letters are pointing to, why we are gathered here this morning. It's the name of Jesus. I don't say his name lightly, on purpose, ever. And God, help me not to. He's the only reason I exist. He's the reason and source of my joy and the smile that's on my face. He's the reason that I choose to do the work that I do day in and day out. He's behind my everything. I am in him and for him and by him and through him. Oh my, that is the weight of all of this conversation getting into this one command that Jesus is talking about in Matthew. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 3. Here's all the application. Remember, Matthew is an evangelist. He is proclaiming the gospel to you today, to his culture at the time. As Matthew was called to Jesus and followed Jesus, witnessed the crucifixion, witnessed the resurrection, witnessed the ascension, was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, like this is the Matthew that we're talking about. And as Matthew is at a table with a quill in hand, this man is filled with the Holy Spirit And through the mind and the heart and the power of God, he is pinning these words down in regard. What do we need to know in regards to the testimony of Jesus? Gave us some of Jesus's background. But when he presses into Jesus's baptism, as Jesus is talking to John the Baptist, he has this line of... It's, it's necessary, it's right, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, that which is morally good, your, your internal morals that are sourced from the word of God. He is addressing righteousness in regards to what is ethically right and good and justice as we sit in a community together. That's what Jesus is expressing. It is right, it's fitting. This is why you exist, is to fulfill, to do the righteousness of God that we all find ourselves failing to do. When you sit in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter four, one of the main ideas that we can pull out of that is Jesus is being tempted to sin. He is being tempted to fail morally. There's something that's come across his life in his mind, specific circumstances being tempted by the devil. But for us in our life, there are things that enter into our life in context, where there's this temptation to deviate from the morals that God has given to you, to deviate from the ethics that God has given to you, to deviate from justice. That's what a temptation is. Reject God and do the opposite. Jesus gives to us this this awesome example of when you encounter temptation, the first thing that we need to do is think. When we sit with our mouth before we speak, what is the first thing that we need to do? Think. Luke, you're in James right now. Exact same thing. Like, bridle our tongue and bridle our mouth. Be quick to hear, but slow to speak. Yeah, we see this instruction throughout the Word of God, and we've read a bunch of these passages already. But as Jesus is being tempted, his example to us and how to remain in that relationship with the Lord when we encounter temptation, the first thing is to think and it's to think about his word. Make sure that we're meditating on and that seed of his word is in our heart that when we encounter temptation, it's not, it doesn't become this heavy weighty thing in our soul because it's not really a temptation because we are really aimed at the Lord and want to be found pleasing to him. No. No. This is what the word of God says here. This is what it says there. And God, I, like, I hear my mind, I hear my flesh, I hear the devil right now trying to pull me in this direction. I don't want to go in that direction. Give me your strength. Give me your power. Clothe me in you. You go sit in Ephesians chapter 6 when it's talking about spiritual warfare and being armed with this spiritual armor. Every single one of the items and the descriptions that are being given, it's not the focus is not on a Roman soldier. The focus is on the Almighty God. We are to be clothed in him. We stand in the power of his might and his strength. He's given us salvation. He's given us faith to believe in him. He's given us truth. He's given us this sword of the spirit, the word of God. So in this context of Matthew, it's we need to think before we respond with our mouth. Now, for those of you who have been here, we've been repetitiously repetitiously pressing into the Beatitudes because that's what Jesus is expressing, the character of his followers, the character of those who are turning from whatever needs to be turned away from, which ultimately is unrighteousness and we're turning towards him and his righteousness in repentance, that is a thinking process. That is a change of mind process. That is a meditation process before we open up our mouths and speak. And here in the Beatitudes, again, listing off all of these different characteristics that we need to pursue diligently, And that he is the one that is going to fulfill his promise to make our hearts look like this as we grow and mature in him day in and day out. We've already expressed the idea, and Jesus has already expressed the idea of our words um, when he told us to be salt and to be light, not to be, but defining us as salt and light. In that definition, he is the, the idea of being salt and adding flavor to circumstances and to the souls of other people's lives that's dealing with our words. To be light is dealing with our behaviors. He's already pressed into these things. And then, as he sits in the, he is the fulfillment of the word of God. He is going to fulfill every single promise, command, instruction, statute that God has in the Old Testament. He is going to fulfill it all in righteousness. Now, as he's sitting in all of these standards in regards to anger and lust and marriage and divorce, and now here with the words of our mouth, all of that is weight to this instruction. Do not swear falsely. This idea is, you know the circumstance. You know what you're saying and why you're saying it. Very often, we will intentionally say words to other human beings to appease them. We'll very intentionally say words to our spouse, to a children, to a co-worker, whoever, well, say words because this is the word that I think that they want to hear rather than they th- I think that they want me to say yes, but I really want to say no, but I'm going to say yes, but I'm really saying no. Does that make sense? Again, the weight that Jesus is pushing into, he's pushing into your personal relationship with the Lord and your communication with God. Be your yes when you say yes to God. Be your no when you say no to God, and you wanna say yes to what God says yes to, and we wanna say no to what God says no to. But as we apply this in our other relationships in life, don't let a circumstance and a person have power over your mouth in a conversation. Very often, you know, you're entering into a conversation and this person's intimidating. I don't know what to say. And we start making our words many rather than few, or we start, uh, this could be in the gossip chain where you don't like this person and the person that you're talking to, you don't want them to like that person either. So you're choosing to bear witness to bear testimony in regards to somebody else that's false. Old Testament, you have heard it said, do not swear falsely. And what you do swear, these words, these oaths, this witness that's coming out of your mouth, make sure that it's true. And if it's not true, stop talking. But I said, in Jesus Christ, you are free. I don't own you. Don't have a conversation with me thinking that you're giving me words that you think that I want to hear or any other human being. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you don't have the courage and the boldness in that moment for your yes to come out because you think you might be offensive or you think that there might be repercussions for your yes coming out, then just don't say anything. Be short in your words. Don't be, don't have an abundance of words. It's going to guard your heart. It's going to guard your mind. It's going to protect your relationships with other human beings. And it's going to keep you in a right relationship with God as you're seeking to follow him day in and day out. When Jesus is saying, for I say to you, don't swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. All these different definitions. And again, he is, what he's doing is he's, he's unveiling reality. I want you to think. When you say, I swear to God, think about those words. Who is God and where is he? God is seated, you know. This is these are words of that we use to give us understanding where he is but God is like positionally everywhere he's outside of his creation he's outside of time but we have this understanding that his seat is a throne because it is in this position of authority and when you say that you swear to God you're swearing to the one who created the heavens you're swearing to the one who created this earth and we have this illustration that if the heavens are his throne and that's how high that he is higher than all this earth is his footstool and that's not to be offensive what that's to mean is everything is underneath his authority and under his submission. He created this earth for an environment for us to live in, to enjoy our life and relationship with him and with one another. So don't even swear by things on this earth. Don't, sw- don't swear by Jerusalem, this holy city, defined here as the city of the great king it comes out of I think it's Psalm 48. Jerusalem is the city that God has chosen for his name to dwell. It is the place where he commanded eventually, you know, it was David's heart, but he allowed it to be done. But for that temple to be built there in Jerusalem, when Jesus returns, he's going to step down on the Mount of Olives, just east of the city of Jerusalem, and he is going to enter in through the east gate. That is his city. That is his land. It's not the land of the nation of Israel. America is not our land. The Canadians, it's not their land. The Chinese land, it's not their land. This earth, it's his. But that city specifically, that city is his. And he's defined it as his because that city is to be a proclamation of his peace and his reconciliation, his nature, his character. When Jesus comes back, he is ruling from that city. That is the city of the great king. And Jesus says, don't swear by heaven. Don't take an oath by the earth. Don't take an oath by the great city. It's his city. And you can't even, you don't even take an oath by your own head. I swear by my own life. I swear by my mother's life. Don't. I can't cause this hair to grow. I've tried. It doesn't work. Therefore, I can't make one of these uh, beard hairs go back to black. They're now turning white. I can't undo time. I don't even have authority over my own aging process. So this is where the direction gets. Be your yes. Be your no. No. Because ultimately in this, he's, he's bringing about integrity for us. Worship team, come, come on up. He's focusing on the integrity of our hearts. And as we meditate and life experiences, we do all kinds of communication. And underneath the communication that is coming out of our mouth, Jesus is telling us to put the brakes on the words that come out. And first, put some thought and put some reasoning into the circumstance. What's, what's helpful right now? What's needful? What's necessary? What's loving? What's kind? When we make commitments, if you are going to tell somebody yes, then be your yes. I am my yes would be the idea. If you're going to say tell somebody no, again, no, I'm, I'm not going to head in that direction. Be your no. I am my no. And this final, the final teaching, the final sentence here is anything beyond that is of evil or of the evil one. It's the word poneros in the Greek, which is where we get pornography from. So an image that is evil is the breakdown of that word. But poneros and kakos are the two words for evil in the Greek. Kakos is something that's just It's just evil. It's just bad. And it's kind of like content in being bad and evil by itself. Poneros is an evil that's permeating. It's an evil that wants to take you with it. It's an evil that wants to bring you down. It's It's an evil that wants to grow and destroy and devastate not just you, but all around you. Think of the Think of the Now with that definition back into what Jesus just said. Be your yes and be your no. Anything that's beyond that, the source of it ends up being from things that are pernicious and malicious and are gonna damage you and they're gonna damage other people. So all of this, Jesus is directing us towards having the bold courage and joy and freedom to let your yes be yes and your no be no and all of your communication free from the pressure that you think anybody's trying to press you into in that circumstance telling yourself a story that this is what they want to hear and you may be totally right but be free in Jesus you are free and have joy in that and have courage in that even if persecution comes your way because Jesus says Blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. So let righteousness be what proceeds out of our hearts, out of our minds, and out of our mouths. Amen.